Intricately is a company that maps the breadth and depth of cloud infrastructure usage. Using a combination of clever algorithms, data engineering, and web crawlers, Intricately derives information about how different companies spend money on infrastructure. Fima Lashinsky is the CEO and co-founder at Intricately. In his previous job at Akamai, he began to study how cloud providers could figure out how much their competitors were charging certain customers. For example, if I'm Akamai, I'm a CDN. A CDN is a commodity with reasonably low switching cost. Maybe I can convince a large customer of a rival CDN to switch over to Akamai if I know what that customer is paying. I can just offer to charge them less. Of course, the question remains, how do I figure out how much potential customers are spending on my competitors? From his work at Akamai, FEMA felt that there was a market opportunity to provide data services to the broader market of cloud providers. There are more cloud providers than ever before, and the kind of data that intricately aggregates is highly useful to this competitive marketplace. Fima joins the show to talk about the modern landscape of cloud providers and how to build a system that maps the internet. A few updates from Software Engineering Daily Land. The Find Collabs first hackathon has ended. Congrats to A Rhythm, Kitspace, and Rivaly for winning the first hackathon prizes. They got $4,000, $1,000, and a set of SE Daily hoodies, respectively. And the Most Valuable Feedback Award, as well as the Most Helpful Community Member Award, were both won by Vince Montgomery, who will receive the SE Daily Towel and the SE Daily Old School Bucket Hat. You can actually get your own if you want one of those. Those are linked to in the show notes, along with everything else I'm mentioning. Find Collabs, which is the company I'm building, is hiring a React developer. The details are in the show notes. A new version of Software Daily, our open-source app and ad-free subscription service, is available at softwaredaily.com. You can also contribute to the project on our Find Collabs or on our GitHub. And Podsheets is our open-source set of tools for managing podcasts and podcast businesses. We are looking for contributors that are interested in contributing to that podcast platform. And with that said, let's get on with today's episode. Fima Lashinsky, you are the founder and CEO of Intricately. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. You map the internet. Why would you want to do something like that? Yeah, right. So, you know, it's interesting. I kind of first stumbled upon the opportunity or the idea while I was at Akamai. And I was actually working with Apple to help them scale their iTunes infrastructure. And at the time, the sales team at Akamai, like, rushed over to the engineering side of the house and were preparing for a sales conversation with Apple trying to get reconnaissance on what infrastructure providers they were using in Southeast Asia. And so I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. Okay, like let's see if we can figure that out. And next week, the same question came up, but this time they wanted to understand, you know, who was powering the same, you know, iTunes cloud in Australia. And as the years went by, this just kept happening. Sales and marketing appeared to be so heavily reliant on engineering to give them that visibility and prepare them for customer conversations. 
And I thought, well, you know, someone's building this. <laughs> this has got to be a better way to get that kind of visibility in a more consistent and repeatable fashion. And, and sure enough, no one was, or at least no one that I could see. And so I thought, what an interesting engineering challenge. You know, it's one thing to kind of scrape and, and pull down HTML and JavaScript from websites to understand like what the front door has, but an entirely different challenge to map out like what's the backend infrastructure that's powering some of these, you know, huge companies. So that was the very beginning of this of this idea. This is a nuanced area. I think we should we should actually go a little bit deeper into why you need to map the internet. Actually, first, first I want to just address what you just said. So basically, the problem that you encountered was you were at Akamai. Akamai is is arguably a cloud provider. I mean, it is a cloud provider. It's a CDN. It's uh, servers in the cloud, which you know they're they're making these gigantic enterprise sales to companies like Apple or companies like Netflix. And those contracts are for so much money. So if you're a salesperson at Akamai and you're trying to sell CDN support to Apple, you know, first of all, you have no idea what to like, what is the ceiling on the price that Apple is willing to pay for that cloud hosting CDN technology. But second of all, you don't know what they're already, like who they're already purchasing from. You don't know what they're sending spending on those people. And so if you're a salesperson, you know, you'd like to have some insight on this, you know, on these numbers before you engage in the sale because the number at which a sale begins is extremely important. It is this anchor price that you're going to be entering into the conversation with and all the negotiation takes place around the anchor price and you got to figure out what that anchor is. So that said, why do you need to map the internet in order to help out with this problem? Yeah, yeah. Well, so you you nailed it, right? There is big dollars at stake. We're talking about millions of dollars and, you know, Akamai is not the only company that struggles with this. It's, it's really any company that's selling an enterprise class product that's, that's a digital product, I mean, digital or, or physical for that matter, right? Anyone powering digital delivery, whether that's storage, network, compute, or actually, you know, CDN has this, this problem. And so, you know, is your question, you know, why do you need to map the internet in order to get to that answer? Because I think the business problem you've laid out clearly, right? You have to have that visibility to have a kind of a optimized sales conversation. So how do you go about doing that? And how do you do that at scale? And, you know, first things first, it's, it's really what we refer to as entity mapping, which is understanding the relationship between things on the internet and actually, you know, businesses that are operating them. So when we talk about mapping the internet, that's actually what it's referring to. Describe what is involved in mapping the internet. Yeah, right. So entity mapping is really about um, identifying digital or physical things and establishing a, a relationship to a business entity. Uh, and, and really, these digital things that we are monitoring and mapping are applications. It's, it's any piece of software that's running somewhere that we can tickle, touch, or, or see in some, in some fashion. So, you know, step one is really just cataloging all of those things and trying to understand who's operating them, who, who owns them. Step two becomes really interesting, which is understanding their dependencies. 
So once you've identified that an application is there, and maybe you, you, you know who, who's operating it, maybe you don't, but you, you want to try and understand what's powering that application, what are the dependencies that the application has in order to deliver the experience that it was designed to deliver. So those are the two kind of core pieces to kind of mapping the internet, as you put it. A map can contain addresses in the physical sense. And on the internet, we obviously have web addresses. We have URLs. Those URLs map to DNS entries, and we can do lookups on those DNS entries. What exists at that lookup? We can we can ping those DNS addresses. We can do who is lookups on those uh, addresses. Given the the span of operations that you can make on any any web address, how much information can you infer from those different operations that you can operate on address using? Yeah. So, so now you're really, you know, unpacking this, this process. And it turns out, you know, there's a tremendous amount of detail that you could gather from this type of interrogation or, or scanning or what have you. And the, the thing that's, that, that I really was kind of turned on to at Akamai was that all of these different probes that you might send, whether that's a Whois lookup or an ICMP ping, their response, the way that uh, that probe might behave will depend on where you're sending the probe from, what time of day you're sending it from. And, and so understanding that, oh, wow, if I really want to get a comprehensive view into the operation of an application or the behavior of an application, I actually have to inspect it from many different locations around the world that really shed light on just the richness of data that you could collect and and really you know who is and and pings and dns lookups you know these are just scratching the surface of the kind of analysis you can perform on an application or an ip address okay well what else could you do sure so for some applications you can actually you know load them in a runtime environment and see how they behave, right? So a web application, very simply, you can load in a headless browser, see what calls it's making. You can bypass DNS entirely and just start to examine IP space. And of course, you want to be a good citizen on the internet. The good news is that there's a lot of very bad citizens on the internet. And so as long as you behave better than them, you know, you can begin to map out from a you know, TCP IP standpoint, what ports, services, and applications are running on IP space. And so different vectors can get you to, in sometimes the same place, but other times they really complement one another. So we try to be as creative as possible in this mapping approach and try to identify, you know, as many kind of endpoints and applications as we can. How does this engineering problem compare to that of a web crawler? Well, there's definitely some similarities, right? I think that a web crawler is probably the first place where people might look to start the process. But a web crawler is really limited to HTTP-based applications. And so if you really want to understand what does, let's say, like Facebook's infrastructure look like, you know, that's going to be scratching the surface. You, you really want to try and get deeper. And so lots of applications are going to be running, well, potentially on different ports, but they might not understand HTTP at all. And so, yeah, I think it's, there's a lot of 
similarities, but it's sort of one data collection vector. And there's, there's many others. Your task is similar to Cadium, or, or now it's called Expanse. We had them on the show in the past, and they're mapping the internet to kind of understand the, I guess, more the the physical and security infrastructure of what is commonly called, uh, I think it's a, a, what is it called, uh, infrastructure sprawl. You know, they're trying to help help companies map what infrastructure they actually have. They seem to be concerned more with security than cost management. Do, do you have any, any insight into their approach and how your approach to mapping the internet differs from theirs? Yeah, it, it's so interesting. There's actually, you know, I think a growing number of companies that are collecting very similar data, but using them for different applications, different business applications. I'm not familiar with Cadium specifically and, and kind of how they're doing what they're doing, but I can tell you that I, I imagine we're probably building very similar entity maps. We are also monitoring every company's infrastructure around the world, how it's changing, what different security solutions they have in place. And I could see how, you know, if we had the sort of business acumen or, or saw the opportunity, we could take the data platform that we're building and instead of helping sales and marketing teams operate smarter, potentially, you know, we could build a product for security researchers or IT ops infrastructure management professionals. There's uh, companies like uh, BitSight who are using very similar data to build credit scores for businesses based on their exposure from a infrastructure standpoint. Uh, and I'm sure it's, it's much more involved than that. But yeah, it, it's really exciting to hear the different uses for what is under, you know, underlying like infrastructure or digital data collected from more or less like public endpoints. We don't have any proprietary access to any of these companies' networks. We're just deployed in a highly distributed fashion and have tapped into kind of all of the different wavelengths, if you will, that exist on the internet. The end result of all this data crawling and data munging is, well, I mean, one example is you like there's this article on your blog about how much money Netflix spends on AWS. And so this, this is basically inferred from this crawling of the internet that you're doing, this pinging of the internet and prodding and, you know, basically deriving from external public sources how much money Amazon, I guess AWS is, is making, well, not necessarily making, but uh, how much money is being spent by Netflix on AWS. You came to the conclusion that Netflix spends around $25 million per month on AWS. How did you infer that? And how do you feel confident in that uh, assessment? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, a really difficult problem. The way we got here was we had all of this kind of low-level data around the breadth of deployment that a particular product had, the uh, amount of traffic that we saw, those different points of presence or product deployments have. And 
we were trying to figure out what's the right way to communicate this to a, a business person. And the obvious answer was, well, let's try to estimate, let's try to estimate spend, right? Let's provide a dollar value because that's the easiest thing to, to understand if you're in a sales or marketing team. And, you know, it, it, it's next to, you know, I would say, I wouldn't say impossible, but it, it's very difficult to get something like that, right? Especially when you're trying to do it for, companies like Netflix or Apple or Microsoft that really would break every model you you have. And so our spend estimates are intended to be directional. They're meant to give you a sense of investment or size. And so we know for a fact that Netflix is actually spending way more money on AWS than, than that. And so the way that a marketing team or a sales team use our spend estimates is they'll bucket them. And they'll say, hey, whether they're spending $100 million a month or $5 million a month, that's a huge amount of spend. And so we want to bucket them in the kind of huge enterprise category. Let's have our enterprise sales team reach out to them. And hey, this other company that intricately has provided a, a spend estimate on, well, they think it's you know, $1,000 a month or $10,000 a month. Okay, let's, let's give that account to our lead gen or, or outbound marketing team and let's let's treat them a little differently. So it's really about arming sales and marketing to do account potential modeling, lead scoring. And so the the level of precision there isn't, you know, quite the level that you might need for say, you know, some other type of use case. Let's go through a few examples. So you have in this category, in this uh report on on Netflix spend you like one category that they spend money in is, on is is a content delivery network and they spend some money on AWS CloudFront and they spend some money on on Akamai how would you figure out how much money or how would you infer how much money Netflix spends on on a content delivery network yeah absolutely so what we would do is, and this is the general approach to how we estimate spends, we're looking at three, maybe four things. The biggest influencer of spend, especially when it comes to a delivery product like a CDN, is traffic. Ultimately, it's the amount of usage that that product is seeing. And so we have actually made a tremendous investment in trying to understand what does traffic for an application look like? There's many third parties that collect this data in, in you know variety of, of ways. You know, Alexa and other companies provide traffic data at the domain level. It turns out you can actually lift traffic data off of the public internet from analyzing public caching infrastructure. So we augment the third party traffic data we collect with our own first party data. So traffic is a really key component to understanding spend. But beyond traffic, you have to also understand the breadth of deployment. So how much Akamai or CloudFront is being used in terms of the number of applications that have it enabled? And then how is it being enabled? Because that can also influence spend, the type of integration that is occurring with that CDN in particular. So breadth of deployment is an important contributor to spend. And then lastly, we maintain internally a rate card of sorts. 
where we know that certain providers charge more, their products are more expensive. And depending on the region that you're receiving that delivery from, you might be paying a premium as well. I'll give you a, a concrete example of that. If you want to do business in China and you want to improve the experience for your Chinese market, it's going to cost you significantly more money. In fact, companies like Akamai offer a separate dedicated delivery service to deliver inside of China. And so all of that factors into a spend estimate. I think we could say here there's a there's a problem of breadth and there's a problem of, of the depth of spend. So the breadth is how many instances are there? How many instances of, of AWS elastic load balancing um, does does Netflix use? And then how much are they spending on each of those instances? It sounds like the, the breadth part of it is a little bit easier, like finding just finding how many instances of, of ELBs are publicly pingable on the public internet, uh, that seems like a, a, an easier problem than figuring out how much consumption of resources is going through those ELBs. So let's, let's go on the, on the depth side of things. How do you figure out how much data is going through the Amazon Elastic Load Balancers on Netflix's infrastructure? Yeah, so now you're you're talking about probably the most challenging engineering problem that we have, which is understanding usage and understanding traffic. And so, you know, as I mentioned, so actually just taking a step back, traffic is one of those things that's really difficult to get visibility into unless you are somehow in network. And so, historically, the way that the rest of the world has gotten any kind of visibility to traffic is through products like Comscore or Nielsen or Alexa, where typically the way that traffic data is being collected is through a panel. And that includes or involves typically like a browser plugin, like the Alexa toolbar, or you know some piece of software that is sitting on an end user's machine and tracking their browsing activity, reporting back. And if you have enough of these users reporting back data, you can start to get a sense for how much traffic a digital property or a website is seeing. So over time, as the rise of connected devices, gaming, mobile has has grown, these approaches become less and less effective. So there's a huge percentage of traffic that the traditional way of collecting traffic data just does not pick up. And so this forced us to build our own traffic measurement apparatus. And so conceptually, what we're able to do is monitor public caching infrastructure and use the cache uh, population of public caching infrastructure to understand the popularity of individual pieces of content that belong to obviously an application and infer the amount of usage or traffic that application sees in a particular location around the world. So we use that data to give us a sense of depth, to give us a sense of traffic or usage. And again, it's, it's on a regional basis. So you can start to imagine how if you know that, say, Netflix has a lot of ELB usage in say, you know, Russia, 
uh, as a for example, then okay, you can start to assign or allocate spend based on that uh, distribution of usage. What is public caching infrastructure? Yeah, so most applications today rely on some form of caching. And so whether that's two categories here, CDNs are kind of the obvious caching infrastructure that we're used to, but DNS resolvers are another really important piece of caching infrastructure. And so when we you know, load up a URL in our browser, as you mentioned at the front of the conversation, one of the first things that the browser does is it tries to resolve that host name to an IP address that your browser can then connect to. Well, it does that using your local DNS resolver. And there's a cache there. It operates exactly like a, a CDN cache does. And so these are examples of public caching infrastructure. And we have instrumented that piece of the internet to give us a sense of for that piece of content in that region, how frequently is it being accessed? And, and how does that map to overall usage? Tell me about the instrumentation of the public caching infrastructure. Well, effectively, what you're doing is you have to check to see, is that content actually actively being requested in region? And you know now we're kind of tiptoeing along the lines of, you know, kind of our own uh, IP, but really it, it, it's as simple as that. We're, we're checking caches for specific pieces of content to see if they've been requested within their TTL window. So when I, when I think about the implementation of DNS infrastructure, it's probably something like an LRU. So it's like, you can ask it, hey, uh, what's the order of the things in your cache? And based on how things move up and down in the LRU, you could derive how frequently is a given domain getting accessed. That's exactly right. Yeah. So TTLs inform you of how fresh a piece of content is in the cache. And so using LRU as a, for example, you can start to understand, oh, um, you know, I requested this piece of content an hour ago and I got a cache miss. Well, what that tells you is that for the past hour, there hasn't been any traffic, any demand for that piece of content. Now, hopefully I haven't like ruined your moat there. I don't think I have because, uh, first of all, by the way, brilliant insight. That is a brilliant insight for how to figure out the depth of cloud spend. Tell me about some other tricks that are up your sleeve. Yeah. And, and really quick here, you know, for the first couple of years of starting the, the business, I thought I had to keep all of this so close to my vest. And, you know, the reality is that ideas are really just not worth that much. It, it, and, and there's so much more involved in building a business here. And so tricks of the trade, you know, th this isn't, uh, it's much harder to actually execute and build something like this, especially at scale. But yeah, it is uh, fascinating, again, to just learn about some of the depth that you can collect from, from the internet. So let's see what else is, is interesting, right? What, what, what other things are we able to do that maybe most people wouldn't be aware of? So another really big problem in the space is entity mapping and being able to identify all of the different applications or domains 
that a company operates. And so, you know, if you think about a company like Netflix, they're operating tens of hundreds of distinct domains. Uh, most of them don't have, you know, anything to do with Netflix on the surface. And so a problem we spend a lot of time trying to solve is, you know, how do we identify all of the different domains that Netflix operates? And so you mentioned who is, well, that's an obvious first place to look. But um, in many cases, who is will not give you the information that you need. There's uh, privacy services that protect domain owners' identities. It's really easy to obfuscate your who is records. And so you have to take a fundamentally different approach to understanding ownership. And so that was one of the first things that we built at Intricately as well. And so you have to triangulate and, and look at different signatures tied to a domain to try and understand the relationships between those domains. So, so that's another really interesting problem space that we spend a lot of time thinking about. I'm realizing that this is going to be just like the Cadium show because I had like two and a half pages of questions prepared and we got to like a fraction of the interesting discussions to be had, partly because this is such a the pro- the problem has so many interesting engineering elements to it. Like not only are you collecting all of this data, you have to do it in a cost efficient manner. You have to do it in a uh, a manner that scales. You have to you have to do all this data engineering in order to actually process this data in a in a a manageable highly parallel fashion. Then you have to build this entire UI layer that lets people access this data effectively. And before we get into some of that other stuff, you have a Chrome extension. So like there's even more opportunities to kind of gather insights about how people are using various internet resources. Explain what your Chrome extension does. So the Chrome extension has been such a wonderful addition to our UI and has really empowered individual salespeople to get spend reporting wherever they are on the web. And so, you know, that was one of the first things that we built thinking about just ease of use and accessibility. And, you know, how can we deliver insights kind of immediately to our sales users? The conversation is really straightforward. All that it's doing is depending on the page that you're on, depending on the site that you're on, it's pinging back home. And you know when you click the Chrome extension, providing you with a intricately report on everything that we see about that company. We want to take a really conservative approach about just the data collection aspect. I think that's perhaps where you originally you know, were headed with the question. And, and so we, we don't really do much data collection as it pertains to the Chrome extension because there's really not that much data we can collect and certainly not, we can collect it in other ways at much higher scale and well, and, and less like loss of trust. I mean, if somebody like was, was, uh, you know, so this is the kind of thing where if you were grabbing data non-discriminately from it, 
I mean, first of all, it's just like probably unpalatable for a lot of engineers that would otherwise want to work with you. But but second of all, like I think probably like that you would if you saw you would see that in the network requests perhaps or or maybe not. Well, so you you touched on the biggest reason why we took a conservative approach, which is our customers are the biggest enterprise cloud and infrastructure companies in the world. And so trust is such a critical piece of us, you know, building a, a, a long-term business here and including passing, you know, very stringent security reviews. So we just chose not to play that game. And again, we can collect a lot of the same information in an asynchronous fashion using our sensor network. So that was an easy decision to make. All right. Well, I'd like to get into a little bit of the infrastructure that you use to perform this uh, high throughput web crawling procedure. Now, if I recall the Cadium discussion, they were using basically containerized, you know, Kubernetes containers that were just reaching out into the internet, grabbing a bunch of different in- pieces of information, and then uh, handing that data to a Kafka queue and then having various stream processing systems work off of that Kafka queue in order to process that data into a, a meaningful end uh, munged set, set of data. I remember when they when we were talking, that was like, I think two years ago, they had not started using functions as a service yet. But this is what's one thing that's interesting about this problem is it's like a perfect application for functions as a service because you have these stateless web crawlers that can just grab some data and then spin down. You can spin them up really easily and cost efficiently. So that said, I'm just, I just wanted to lay out a bit of a, of a map for the different pieces of infrastructure that I see as relevant to this problem. Tell me about your infrastructure. Yeah, so FAST is a, a, a really you know, exciting proposition. It's like the, 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 the new shiny kid on the block. So we're kind of excited to take that for a spin, but we're kind of in the same position as the Cadium team where we, we haven't quite uh, taken the plunge there. So in order to do this type of data collection at scale, you not only have to be highly distributed, but you need to be running on many different providers. It can't be just you know across AWS or, or Google Cloud. So we're provisioned across 30 different actually over 30 different cloud providers around the world, 100 different locations. And, you know, we don't use containers nearly as much as we should. Really, we have a tool set that we've deployed on these hosts. And we hand-rolled basically a, a command and control center that's directing them and dropping instructions to them to perform a variety of you know different data collection and then we have another system that comes in and and picks up the data from them and so it's something that you know as i mentioned like we kind of hand hand built and it's it's been working really well and that's one of the kind of core pieces of the sensor network we have other pieces of the network that don't require kind of massive distribution and can be more centralized. And so we'll kind of let them do their uh, sense of data collection where they don't need to be uh, kind of close to those resources. But that's at, at a high level kind of what the infrastructure looks like. And it took us a while to get there because especially when you start looking at getting presence in regions where 
you know, the, the, the major pro- cloud providers don't exist. There's these regional providers that don't really have APIs or their management portals are, you know, sometimes not working or just the language barrier is very challenging. So we spent, you know, a considerable amount of time trying to kind of operationalize, being able to spin up resources in these kind of lesser known regions so we can get visibility there. Tell me about data engineering. What's the infrastructure for your data engineering look like? Sure. So we rely heavily on Elasticsearch and, you know, a lot of the data engineering that we do is kind of like, I would say, off-band. And what I mean by that is we'll use different ML frameworks or approaches to building models. And we have a, a separate team that does that. But then to actually implement those models, we use Ruby. And so a lot of the actual glue that takes a model and deploys that into production is implemented using Ruby. And we've got a collection of actually Postgres, Mongo, and Elasticsearch, all kind of service, servicing different aspects of our of our kind of data infrastructure, but a lot of it is also, you know, like home rolled. And so kind of soup to nuts, it's Ruby straight to Postgres or Elasticsearch. And uh, that tends to be where the data ends up living. Is cost management an issue for you at all? Absolutely. And, you know, we've taken a maybe a, a path that many startups have. You know, we, we initially started on Heroku for really everything and, and very quickly realized that wasn't going to scale. So we moved to AWS. And Sorry, real quick. It wouldn't scale in what sense? Cost-wise. I mean, you know, just from a, a data storage standpoint, we were using their Postgres, you know, managed service. And very quickly, we, we saw, you know, just the amount of data we had to collect and, and what that was doing to our and bills. The, so, and and it, was the, it, was, it was the Postgres instance that were the Postgres cluster that was the limiting reagent or was the processing also too cost intensive? No, it was, it was really all about data storage. It was all about Postgres. And we weren't storing any kind of large, you know, uh, objects in Postgres, but but just the you know the pointers the records like the reason I'm asking I, I, I'm really glad to hear that just because I have like several apps on Heroku and I'm like oh no <laughs> you know like as long please because like, I don't have much data so it's okay but anyway go ahead please continue yeah, Heroku is wonderful I mean it, I, it was exactly uh, yeah it, it was such a, a a pleasant experience and really you know taught us a lot about just infrastructure management and, and our deployment process, you know, how do you make this really simple for developers? But yeah, just the cost of, of maintaining a large Postgres cluster did not make sense. So we moved it to RDS on AWS and very quickly discovered the same thing, which was, okay, costs are just going out of control. And so we then moved to DigitalOcean. We manage our own Postgres cluster now, and, and we're, we're really thrilled with, with DigitalOcean. So, you know, we're, we're able to keep our costs manageable there. And when when you're collecting this type of data at scale, you kind of have to take costs into consideration from the very beginning. So we designed our not just data collection, but data processing and data storage in such a way to be sensitive to that. And really, you know, there's a combination of just basic things like, hey, let's just make sure we compress things uh, before we, you know, store them to if some data can be sampled, let's sample it. Let's be smart about 
making sure that we're collecting the right amount of data at the right time to power the right data feature. And so far, it's worked well for us. Since you mentioned the eventual migration, like, uh, first of all, sorry to hear you had to migrate your core database twice. That sucks. Uh, that sounds really like unpleasant. But you, since you mentioned DigitalOcean, and you probably know about the cloud provider market more than or as much as anybody I've talked to, what do you see as DigitalOcean's... I guess, like strength or their, um, what is their, you know, what do you feel is their core competence? Because I, I feel like my, I look at the cloud, I mean, full disclosure, DigitalOcean is a sponsor of the show, but I feel like they are this like a dark horse in the cloud space, but I honestly have no insight into how many customers they have or like, like whoa, you know, what their usage patterns is like are like. Give me your, like your framing of DigitalOcean in the competitive landscape. Yeah, sure. Well, number one, just, Go to Intricately and you can see how many customers they have. We, we give that to you for free. So, you know, that's, that's an easy one. But, you know, DigitalOcean is, is one of those cloud companies that they really get out of your way. I mean, it's, it's such a breath of fresh air when you compare them to, you know, the, the four or the three big guys in the space, right? Like AWS, Azure, Google Cloud. I, I don't know if you've ever... Um, uh, attempted to provision anything on like Microsoft Azure, but I would encourage you to do that and and compare that to DigitalOcean. It's like you know night and day. So number one, I think DigitalOcean's just approach to developer enablement and, and truly owning this notion that like we're going to be embracing simplicity. That that's really been the case, you know, uh, throughout their kind of product suite. They're wonderful from an economic standpoint, like pricing, especially when compared to an AWS. So those are like the two things that we looked at, which was, hey, do do our uh, engineers enjoy using DigitalOcean? Is it really easy for us to spin up instances and and manage them? And then number two, what's the impact from a cost standpoint? So they've, they've won on both accounts. Not to go deeper on DigitalOcean, well, despite the fact that they're a sponsor of the show, but I've spoken to Moisey, the one of the founders, a couple times, and he really struck me by his his vision. And it was a vision that was pretty distinct from from other cloud providers. I think that simplicity thing, it's just over the years, like I've seen the, the scale and the narrative of the other, like, quote, hyperscale cloud providers it became really hard for me to assess DigitalOcean in the competitive landscape, you know, when when the other players are are. I mean, first of all, they're able to land these you know these tremendous enterprise contracts because kind of because of their feature richness. But that feature richness is obviously like sort of the the jujitsu downfall of them relative to DigitalOcean. But it's just it's very it's very hard for me to to again to assess the relative strengths of them. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just like the competitive differentiators of the different cloud providers. Like I see it as a very not zero sum uh, world, a very early days, not zero sum world, but it is often framed in this competitive landscape uh, mentality. I, I'd just love to get your, your philosophies on the cloud provider competitive landscape. Sure. So you, you know, the famous quote by Mark Andreessen that software is eating the world. Yes. Well, actually, it's AWS that's eating the world. <laughs> right. And, and, 
And that is the biggest insight that you know we, we have found from monitoring the, the cloud war. It, it's really astonishing. The pace and the size with which AWS is operating and moving from just a customer acquisition and customer growth standpoint. You know, Azure and Google Cloud are such distant second and, and third place competitors. And, and I think that we'll go one by one, right? Azure is interesting because they have the benefit of a really large existing Microsoft enterprise, you know, uh, customer base. And so, you know, I, I think that they're in a stronger position to capitalize on the market opportunity in front of them, right? Just, just from that network effect. I think, you know, Google Cloud is interesting, but, and they've seen some shakeup, you know, from a leadership standpoint, just this, this quarter. So it, it'll be interesting to see kind of where they take their, their cloud business, but they definitely have a, a phenomenal brand. And I think, especially on the AI side of things, uh, they're doing some wonderful, they're doing some wonderful things. So it's too early to say, but I think, you know, the, the big insight is just how far ahead AWS is from everybody else. And back to just DigitalOcean quickly, I think the big differentiator here when compared to the other providers is I think DigitalOcean is one of the few companies that actually eats their own dog food, right? Like they're, they're actually using DigitalOcean and that's what makes such a big difference in building products that developers actually love and can actually embrace where you can tell that someone built this who's actually having to use this themselves as opposed to, you know, doing like customer panels and collecting, you know, usage information on how something is being used. So yeah, I, I think that like fundamentally different approach is what differentiates them. But you're right, it's not a, a zero-sum game. Like the market is moving faster than any of these providers are able to move on their own. And so I think there's enough for, for everybody. But interesting to see in this, you know, frothy market, who's actually winning the most. And it's pretty clear AWS is just a complete monster in the space. Do you have any insight into the the second layer cloud provider market? So you have the Netlify's and the Heroku's and the Zeit's of the world any sense of how much these things are growing and their unit economics? You know, it's interesting where we are right now in the market, really focused on kind of the top tier um, largest cloud providers. Outside of Heroku, we haven't really, and I, I personally haven't looked at some of the other, as you've called it, second layer providers. I'd love to take a look and follow up with you and give you a sense of, you know, what we see there because we definitely have, you know, tremendous insight. It's just I can't actually recall when I looked at, you know, kind of Netlify's growth or for that matter, anyone kind of in that space. And so if you don't mind, like, I'll take a rain check on that one. Let's, and let's do it. Let's, yeah. let's, do, let's do a show on, uh, on a third party assessment of second layer cloud providers. Hundred uh, percent. Okay. Any sense of this is like really getting off topic, but any sense of like how just how profitable AWS is? Like, do you have any sense of like the? Have you looked into the like thought about the unit economics of their different systems? And that's that's pretty hard to assess, I imagine. Wow. Well, 
it's so interesting. We, we haven't crossed that bridge just yet, but one of the applications that we are really excited to power, right? We, we, we've started off really focused on helping sales and marketing teams operate smarter and really focused on operations teams. You know, the financial services community, the investment community really wants to get a view into this specific question, which is not only like, how is AWS competing with the Azure's and the Google Clouds and Oracles of the world, but unit economics, right? Margins, how much are they actually able to make off of all this usage? So we just started thinking about that last year. And, and you know, that's a really difficult thing. Like talk about like a second order problem that is like, you know, trying to build on top of the first one that you're, you know, really challenged by. But I don't know if we have a great answer for, for that just yet. The, the way that we were thinking about tacking that problem is to actually look at the regions that AWS is servicing customers out of and the types of customers that they're servicing them out of. But yeah, you're, you're really now doing lots of inferences. So no, no great, no great answer there just yet. Of course, because we don't even know, like they might be taking a loss on AWS Lambda for all we know. Well, that's exactly what we're seeing happening in the CDN space where, you know, the way that Google, uh, excuse me, AWS is using, you know, CloudFront as a, for example, is, you know, keeping their prices really low as a way to, as a way to subsidize their compute and network and and get, you know, users onto the platform, right? And, And really... Yeah, exactly. Very few companies are able to do anything like that, right? It's AWS is in this crazy position where they can actually give away some of their products for free as a way to get you onto the platform. And so, you know, we saw that firsthand when we were first fundraising, where we realized they were, you know, giving away a quarter million dollar worth of AWS credits to startups just so that you could begin to build on top of them. And they're doing that at a scale you wouldn't believe. So the war that they're fighting, very different from most providers. Getting even further away from anything that I thought this conversation would focus on, I would say that, you know, the the thing that concerns me about AWS and Amazon is really like the scope and scale and the complexity and the potential perhaps susceptibility to black swans that this kind of like kind of financial gamesmanship might lead to. I mean, I, I would never want to like cast aspersions on on Amazon or AWS or anything, but when you start to do stuff like that, like take take a loss on a highly complex product, does that ever come to mind to you? Does that kind of concern ever come to mind to you? The like too big to fail sort of thing. You know, it's interesting. One of the trends that we're seeing pick up is enterprises use of multi-cloud strategies, multi-cloud provider strategies. That was always a thing in like the upper echelon of of enterprises, but we're we're now seeing that move down market where, you know, even SMBs, right? Companies in the in the mid-market are going with two or sometimes even three cloud providers. Now, they might be doing it for different reasons. Not all of them are, are doing it because they're concerned with respect to kind of putting all their eggs in one basket. Maybe it's out of necessity. But I think it's actually, I mean, I'm taking a slightly different angle here. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> That's okay. I, I, think it's be- I think it's actually beneficial to the overall you know, health of the market where 
you know, a rising tide kind of lifts all boats. I don't know enough about AWS's business specifically in this regard. Like, again, we're kind of inferring based on you look at the government contracts or the government, you know, relationships that they have where some of the most conservative parts of the market have hitched themselves to AWS. So you want to trust that they're, you know, they've done their diligence and they're doing the right thing there. But, you know, of course, you know, when you look at it from an outsider's perspective, it is a little alarming, right? I think there's been murmurs of regulation or, you know, splitting up Amazon or any number of ways to try and and manage that risk. So we'll see what the future holds. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to watch. Your customers, from what I understand, are cloud providers. I mean, mostly like cloud hosting, data centers, like content delivery networks. Uh, Just briefly, because I know we're almost out of time. Can you explain who you're actually selling to and how you make money? Yeah, sure. So fundamentally, we help sales and marketing teams. And sales and marketing teams selling digital infrastructure goods. It's not just cloud or CDN. So I don't know if I, if I can announce this. I probably can. Yeah. So, so, so Snowflake is a, a customer of ours, right? For those of you that aren't familiar with Snowflake, it's a data platform, right? They're not selling cloud hosting or infrastructure. They're actually selling, it's like AWS Redshift. It's a data warehouse in the cloud. And this is just an example of the types of products that uh, we can help go to market faster, scale, and help their marketing teams spend their marketing dollars in smarter ways. So we're all about providing a map or a compass to operations teams to help guide them with respect to where they should deploy sales resources, where they should deploy marketing resources. And it's not limited to infrastructure. It's really anyone selling a large, expensive digital product. And, you know, it's interesting. For the last, like, 20 years, they've all been doing the same thing. They've all been using the same firmographic data to try and size their markets, to try and do territory planning, to build account potential scoring, and it really doesn't make sense when you're selling a digital good and you're selling to companies that are, you know, cloud native, they're digital companies. So we're coming to the market with a fundamentally different approach to how you would do, you know, account planning or territory segmentation. And if you want to be effective in this digital age, you have to use digital consumption data, digital usage. We've kind of boiled that down to a spend number and provide a lot of context around that spend. But we're really helping sales and marketing teams size and and go to war in this new digital divide. Fima, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Jeff, this has been a lot of fun. I'll definitely circle back with you on this second layer uh, question that you have. And yeah, really enjoyed it. We'll do it. We'll do round two. Thanks, Fima. Looking forward. Thanks, Jeff. Wow.